District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We are joined by Mandy Gunasekara, formerly Chief of Staff of the EPA's most recent administrator under the Trump administration, Andrew Wheeler, and she's held a multitude of roles among her consulting work. She and I served together both as visiting fellows at the Independent Women's Forum covering the Energy and Environment Meet. And we're going to talk a lot about what's trending in this particular niche area, what's on her mind, and even dive deep into some really fascinating topics like Bitcoin mining. So Mandy, good to catch up with you. Yeah, good to be here. And I just have to say that it is so nice to have someone to share this gigantic portfolio with, um, and especially someone like you who's so versed in um, conservation issues and a lot of areas that there's just a, a bigger need for understanding and a massive opportunity for folks to work together under the umbrella of environmentalism. Yeah, I'm learning as I go, of course, but having someone like you who's had far more experience than me as an observer, but someone who's worked in the agency level to help break down and, and go over like concrete specifics and details is very beneficial, I think, to someone like me who's still learning, especially on the energy side. But I've had to learn as I go, but you're the expert. That's why we brought you on here to talk about it. But what led you to want to explore this portfolio of energy and environment? Did you have like an aha moment? It stuck out to you? Did you incline yourself naturally to this topic? Kind of a combination. It started with internships. Um, I interned during undergrad and then all throughout law school, and then that eventually led me back to D.C., um, where I interned again, even after I was a newly minted attorney, but then found my way back into the energy and environment Capitol Hill portfolio. But one of my first internships I did when I was in law school was at the Energy and Commerce Committee, and it was during the summer of cap and trade. So this is 2009, um, when some people may have heard of the Waxman-Markey Bill, but it was really the first time that some folks on Capitol Hill were trying to assign a value or a tax, as we would describe it, um, to uh, an emission of carbon dioxide. And it's really when that conversation took off. It ultimately passed in the House. It failed in the Senate because then Senate Democrat Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid would not take it up because it is politically uh, very unpopular. And the House actually lost the Democrat majority in part because of people who had supported bad policy to assign a tax to carbon emissions, um, which we know now really will do little in terms of reducing the trajectory of emissions in the long run, but nonetheless make everything more expensive in the short term. So I really started in on these issues as an intern, researching how many emissions are affiliated with a variety of things that we use every day, from cars to phones to industrial activities, um, such as manufacturing operations and factories. And we still see people flirt with the notion of carbon taxes, but more and more, I would say, findings and evidence has been revealed by like the Tax Foundation. And then when you're talking about REGI, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, yeah. which also encompasses a carbon tax, I think more and more people are skeptical of that notion. So it's interesting you mentioned that even then and even now, people are more and more skeptical of it because it really has no profound effect on emissions reductions. Absolutely. And it's one of these things. So we can talk about the Environmental Protection Agency and um, pros and cons with uh, the growth and contraction of a federal bureaucracy, but if you're trying to control emissions via carbon tax, you're literally shifting that responsibility to the IRS. And do we really want the IRS that doesn't have 
the degree of engineering expertise and maybe economists, but you don't have um, you don't have all the scientists and geologists and biologists and the things that are necessary to understand how to implement policies to actually achieve lower emissions, whether you're talking greenhouse gases or air pollutants or, or uh, water pollutants, you need that type of input. You don't have that at the IRS, so it really doesn't make sense from a practical perspective. And in the short term, it makes things more expensive, um, which creates a series of negative consequences, usually harming those who can least afford it the most. Yeah, because people in lower and middle income brackets depend on carbon intensive goods. And ultimately, if you impose that tax, from what I've learned in my research about Reggie and how it institutes a similar model, that's good. all the costs are going to be shifted to consumers, yeah. and then that'll drive businesses out of states, yep. and then ultimately out of the country. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and that, that supply of these goods doesn't go away. It just ends up in places where there's not as strict of an adherence to environmental laws, labor, law, labor laws, places like India and China and Russia, um, where if you look on the books, it looks like they have meaningful laws, but when it comes to the enforcement, it's just not the same as it is here in the United States. Let's talk about your time in the Environmental Protection Agency. A lot of people, I'd say a lot of my media colleagues, had undue scrutiny onto the agency. And anytime you guys did something that was not even remotely controversial, from what I gather and remembered from coverage, everything was still very bad and horrible. You guys were despoiling water and land and air quality. You were deregulating. Somehow deregulation is a dirty word, although you can deregulate and still uphold environmental standards, which Absolutely. is what I think people fail to understand. There's no either or in that respect. But describe the two rules you had under the agency if you can. Yeah, for sure. So I started out as an advisor to the first administrator, Scott Pruitt, and I came, I was brought on board to basically define and lay out what we were going to do under the air portfolio. And that's one of the larger portfolios at EPA. If you look at the number of regulations that come out and you're going to assign a percentage value, over half of the regulations that come out are under the scope of the Clean Air Act and other statutes that the Office of Air and Radiation are responsible for implementing. So I came on board. The reason I did, I had been serving in the Senate and I was uh, in charge of the Climate Action Plan, applying oversight, which was the Obama administration's attempt to set economy-wide greenhouse gas standards in order to comply with the Paris Climate Accord. So I came in early on to help the president realize his commitment to get out of the Paris Climate Accord, which was a really important, it's really important from just a let's be honest about the environment perspective. You don't need to sell out the American industry to foreign entities in order to improve your environmental standing in the world. That's something we understood. And compliance with the Paris Climate Accord undercut our ability to be successful in that. And so I was brought on board under Scott Pruitt and then eventually ended up as the Principal Deputy Assistant Administrator in the Office of Air and Radiation, one of these very, very long titles. Um, but essentially guiding the, we had about 1,500 career staff, and this includes a lot of engineers and scientists housed out in what's called Research Triangle Park. It's a it's an EPA office that's out in Raleigh, North Carolina area. Working with them and then some of our air experts out in various regions. We've got 10 regional offices throughout the country, but working with them, um, really implementing a lot of 
state action or providing oversight and input of state actions focused on reducing air pollutants, traditional ones like particulate matter, um, uh, let's see, ozone, sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxide, the traditional pollutants that if you were to walk outside and see a particle floating around, we worked really hard to work with the states to implement federally set standards to continue to clean up our air. And then also worked on some of the greenhouse gas regulations when I first walked in. Clean Power Plan had been stayed by the Supreme Court, so there was this giant gap of, okay, what are we going to do and how are we going to go about doing it in a, in a manner that is consistent with the goal and scope and importantly limitations of the law, things that we believed had been ignored in the previous administration. Um, and then working on CAFE standards, uh, ultimately what led to our SAFE rule, which is now in a little bit of back and forth with the Biden administration changing the efficiency standards and the greenhouse gas standards um, for, for vehicle manufacturers and the folks affiliated with that supply chain. So my first, my first role was in the air office, focused on some of the more technical components to ongoing regulatory actions, um, also figuring out what did we need to cut back and what did we need to keep, and if we were keeping it, were we keeping it in a manner that not only worked, but was consistent with the law. And so the whole notion that deregulation is a bad word is fundamentally flawed. You don't need more regulations to continue to achieve environmental progress, and we've proved that out over the scope of the Trump administration, um, you can actually be much more efficient with less regulatory actions on the books because you have the, the, the people who have to comply with these regulations, whether it's a business or um, someone in the extractive industries or someone uh, driving around in their vehicles and having some derivative business off of that, if they can spend less of their time on lawyers and consultants to comply with the words in the Federal Register and can instead invest in innovative technologies and growing their businesses in a more efficient manner, that actually lends itself to more tangible environmental good than spending all your time focusing on a lot of academic rhetorical conversations that people in Washington, D.C. feel good about, but doesn't really change the trajectory of your environmental standing in the real world. Yeah, talk about going back to the agency in the final year of the Trump administration to work as chief of staff for Andrew Wheeler. Yeah, so I left for a short stint, then got pulled back in, as you tend to do, um, and I was so honored to be invited back to work for someone like Andrew Wheeler. He is so smart, he's so thoughtful on the range of environmental issues, and he started his career as a career staffer at EPA. He worked in the pesticides office um, right out of, I'm pretty sure it was right out of college, or it may have, may have been right after law school, may have to cross-check that. But anyway, early in his career, he was a career staffer working in the chemicals office when they were really trying to improve the transparency um, between public knowledge of chemicals and how it was being used. It was really the early stages of that. But nonetheless, he's a technical expert who has massive experience in the administration as a career staffer, in the Senate, um, you know, shaping the Environment and Public Works Committee. And then he was appointed to be the administrator. He originally came in as deputy administrator. And then when Scott Pruitt left, 
Um, the president called and asked him to be the administrator. And you know, when the president calls and asks you to do something like that, the answer is always yes. But it was really an honor for him to ask me to come. And uh, we, we were hoping it wasn't going to be our closeout year. We were hoping it was going to be the end of term one and the beginning of term two. But obviously, that didn't necessarily work out how we wanted. But coming back in as chief, it was, it was really interesting because it expanded my, expanded my scope and understanding of the agency, having been more of a technical nerd, um, really deep in what was going on in the bowels of the air office. Now I was responsible for what was going on in our water office, our chemical office, our Office of Land and Emergency Management, which really is our soil experts, our Superfund program, plus our enforcement, our legal division, and then general HR stuff. So it was... Um, it was, people say, a mile wide and an inch deep. I felt like in that role, it was like 10 miles wide and half an inch deep on everything, but it was a really great opportunity. And that last year, we really closed out a ton of major regulatory actions um, that I think will have such a positive and lasting effect in the tangible environmental way, like I was talking about earlier. One of the biggest things we closed out was updating the lead and water, or the lead and copper standard, which was, you know, the heightened, there was heightened interest after the Flint water crisis, but there was regulatory standards that had not been updated for 30 years. And we closed that out in 2020 and really set in motion realistic standards to not only get lead out of water in communities, but in specific areas that historically had been ignored um, for resources and things along those lines, not because of ill will, but had been ignored, like making sure there wasn't lead at schools and daycares. Um, so anyway, it was a really great opportunity. When you work for someone like Andrew Wheeler, you better do your homework before you walk into the room because chances are he knows more about the issue than you do. And so it was, it was a big challenge in a lot of different ways, but it really was a highlight of my career. And something you had told me the last time or first time we met a few weeks ago when we had that big IWF fellowship meeting, yeah. you told me that had you guys had four more years, you're going to work with groups like Four Ocean, which does really good stuff to address like plastics pollution. Yeah. You want to talk about that experience? Because everyone says the Trump administration would never work with entities that didn't necessarily agree with them. But if that was true and that would have materialized, that's a very interesting revelation. So why do you think that would have been a really interesting partnership? Yeah, well, it was the, our marine debris initiative, and um, it's going after plastics, but all sorts of other things that end up in the ocean that shouldn't necessarily be there, that has negative effects on the entire ocean ecosystem. But one of the things we really focused on um, was water quality. So globally, um, more deaths are caused because of lack of access to clean water. Um, and this is across the board, whatever you're looking at. And so Administrator Wheeler, he really wanted to prioritize that as a goal to, yes, continue to clean up what we were doing at home, but also even as EPA Administrator, you find yourself in a lot of international conversations. And so to gen up a lot of interest and resources to clean up the globe's water and then a piece of that is plastic pollution and the marine debris. And the good thing about that, there's, there's a lot more opportunities to work with a lot of different stakeholders um, in, in going after plastic pollution um, and marine debris than in other areas. And so it was a really good place where there was a ton of corporate interests, a ton of state and regional interests, and then global interests. And so 
one of the biggest causes of marine debris and plastic pollution is really poor waste management practices. So it truly does start on programs on land that if you don't responsibly handle your waste, what happens is that waste ends up in tributaries and waterways that ultimately end up in the ocean. So he worked really hard um, and we had been planning COVID actually complicated this. We've been planning on having a really large marine debris forum where we were going to invite a lot of the international interests and places like Four Oceans to come together to speak about these issues. COVID really undermined our ability to do, to do that. Um, but it was, it was a major focus, and there still is that momentum within the agency. You don't necessarily hear about it because it's not, it's not highlighted as much. But the Marine Debris Program, as well as a recycling initiative, um, while he was there, he set a national recycling goal um, that had only been done once in the past, and he really increased that standard to, to try to embrace this idea of a circular economy. That's a term you hear in a lot of international spaces, but it's the age-old idea of what conservation is rooted in, is doing more with less and using what you have to the fullest extent possible. So he had a lot of programs, a lot of interest, and a lot of resources devoted to doing that in the recycling space, and cleaning up the oceans as a derivative of really trying to improve understanding, expectations, and global standards for access to food. Yeah, you don't hear that much in the media. And he also did really, you guys did a lot with Superfund cleanups. Yeah. I showed you the article where Politico admitted this is the one green thing that Trump's EPA is doing, but there was a lot more green stuff that they were doing, but that was one they particularly highlighted. And then obviously there was WOTUS, which is... Yeah volleying back and forth. Do you want to talk about your concerns with this volleying back and forth from the 2020 rule to whatever they want to do now? I feel like they want to revert back to the Obama era rules. They do. Uh, they, they want to apply a more expansive view of what does it mean to have a water of the U.S. and what is a navigable water. So the federal government's jurisdiction in an area or over a certain land is defined by whether or not that land has a navigable water that then is a water of the U.S. So if you are a private property or a landowner, if you want to make changes to that property and you have a WOTUS, you have to go to the federal government for permission on how to, on whether or not you can do whatever the changes are. So um, in the Trump administration, really it was going back to a more traditional view of what is a navigable water. And there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is clarity to landowners and private property owners and developers and then home builders and miners, like all sorts of industry is impacted by this, including ag and ranchers. It's a big deal for the ag community. But anyway, the, the overarching goal was to ensure that if you owned a piece of property, you didn't have to expend tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars in environmental consultants and engineers to determine whether or not you had to go to the federal government to ask permission to use your land in a way that was going to be beneficial for, um, for, for yourself or for your business. So it was all about clarity. It really went back to what's called the continuous surface connection test. Now, it's, it's more nuanced and more complicated than that, but you and I, even being laymen in this relative space, we could look at something and understand, okay, that's probably a navigable water and falls under the scope of WOTUS and we would need to go get a permit or that is not. Um, what this administration is trying to do is reinstate what's called the significant nexus test. And it's a very convoluted way to grossly expand the federal government's reach 
on all, in all sorts of areas where if you and I were to go out today, it would literally be dried up cracked land where there may be some indentation where you know water runs through it occasionally, but really not that much. And so the interesting factor is you have the Biden administration in the process of rewriting WOTUS, but the Supreme Court just a few weeks ago decided that they are going to take up the Sackett's test. This is or the Sackett's case, excuse me. Um, and so in the middle of the Biden administration rewriting their rules, trying to apply a more expansive view of their authority and its application to just the general land, the Supreme Court is going to look at this case where they're going to speak or they have the ability to speak directly on what is the right approach and what is the wrong approach. And the, the hope for a lot of people is given the conservative makeup and knowing some of the regulatory history of Justice Kavanaugh when he was at the D.C. Circuit um, and Justice uh, Coney Barrett is that they will provide limiting clarity to where EPA's role and oversight ends in the context of navigable waters and WOTUS. Yeah, I remember a case that really stuck out to me in terms of the application of the Obama-era rules. The case of the Navy veteran yeah. who was suffering from cancer. They indemnified his property and they labeled, I think it was a lake or a pond that had no, I think, contiguous like relationship with other bodies of water and navigable water. And it imposed all these different burdens to him. He was sued in perpetuity. He died of cancer, and it was only posthumously that the courts and other jurisdictions ruled that like this was excessive. He'll be paid restitution. His widow will be paid restitution. And that was an extreme case, but it seems like that could, and I forget the name, he was in Montana, Wyoming, one of those two cases. And it was a very oft-discussed case yeah. of what would happen if Lotus rules were too generalized. Yeah. And you basically label every, put, like a puddle, a, a pond. A ditch. Ditch, like simplest of which shouldn't have those Lotus classifications right. as a navigable water. And it incurred a lot of harm to him. I have no doubt there were other similar case studies as well, but that case stuck out to me and it was so unfair even from like a human standpoint level I'm like this is so burdensome this is not this is an abusive environmental law it, it shows the government should be limited in what they can and cannot do with respect to waters of the United States and so do you feel that that could those cases similar cases like that could potentially arise again if they were to revert back to the significant nexus? Yeah, certainly, because the significant nexus test is about as clear as mud. And when you have that lack of clarity, you can you can be 100% right in your standing, but if the federal government comes in and challenges it, you can go bankrupt defending your position where ultimately you may be proven right, and in the situation you referenced posthumously, um, and it, it, like, what did, but let's go back. What did that do to clean up the water? Nothing. It did absolutely nothing. It was a massive waste of resources. And so if you have these expansive environmental laws where there's gaps in clarity or lingering ambiguity, what that really boils down to is a lot of wasted resources in the context of legal battles and, you know, everything that goes into that back and forth from po uh, political fights things that are totally removed from actually doing something that protects pristine waters or cleans up waters that need it. 
And so it's such a diversion. And so if, if the Biden administration does go back to that, I mean, a resulting effect will be more cases and people who are impacted by it. Um, they're going to have to expend more resources pushing back. Now, hopefully, the Supreme Court, in taking this up, they can help people avoid that situation by really providing some long overdue clarity, clarity that hasn't existed um, for decades. It seems like on a lot of environmental issues, there's still a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. It's not just the WOTUS rules. I've also heard that they may eventually decide on language relating to perhaps clarifying the presidential authority of national monument designation. So on a lot yeah. of environmental or conservation law, there's still a lot of outstanding, I think, opinions and cases to be decided on, a lot of uncertainty, of course. So I think the rule, they want people to submit comment until February 10th. Is that yeah. correct? I remember you and I were discussing about this. So they, they're trying to seek public input about changing the rules. Supreme, do you think a Supreme Court case on WOTUS would be decided before the end of term, or would it be next term, you think? I think... I think it would be before next term. Okay. I'm not... I, I don't... I'm not quite sure. Because sometimes they rule outside of the confines of their terms. Like, they sometimes hand emergency decisions, like, in the summertime, like, yeah. after June. Or it could I, be early fall, I don't know. I don't know that anyone applied for that emergency type of consideration in this instance. Um, but they they know what's going on in the real world, so to speak. And so they know that even though they're taking up this case where the definition is going to be very impactful to an ongoing major regulatory action including the, occurring in the Biden administration, they know that's going on. And so there are times where that spurs them into faster consideration and faster action. But I, I it's so convoluted, but you, I think, gave a great layman's explanation about it, and I still have to do more research about WOTUS. I've been able to write about it, and I understand it myself, the different tests, the nexus tests, and the other tests. But it, it is, they, they should make it simple for people to understand, because the people they impact don't have time to learn about legalese, they don't have time to learn about all these different things. So they, they make it so complicated so people won't be able to challenge it, in my opinion. But Let's move over to Administrator Wheeler yeah. now being considered to be the Natural Resources Secretary. It's actually a longer formal title in yeah. Virginia. But a lot of his responsibilities, if he is to be confirmed, right now he's acting secretary in Virginia in the Yunkin administration. There's a lot of pushback, of course. I think more pushback than he received while he was under consideration for it, it uh, for EPA administrator. Interestingly enough, he actually was able to have an easier confirmation process federally. But Senate Democrats in Virginia have waged to get his nomination removed entirely. They have promised to do this, although there are a few Democrats maybe who are open to confirming yeah. him. But in Virginia, for those of you listening, cabinet confirmations don't necessarily just have to end with the Senate. The House of Delegates also weighs in as well. So it's very different from federal confirmation where it's both chambers actually weighing in. So talk about the pushback he's received. Why is that? Is it stemming from his involvement in the Trump administration? Is 100%. it unfounded claims? Yeah. What What do they have contention with with his record? Well, it's, it's because he worked for President Trump. And there's a lot of focus on him because... Um, you know, he's, he's one person going through this nomination right now, whereas during the Trump administration, there were multiple people. And so it, it really is, it's frustrating because if you set aside the unfounded political rhetoric, which all of the criticism is coming from 
people who didn't even work with him or didn't even know him. So I think that's important to know. It's people repeating things that are false and then they don't have that personal experience. And then something that I worked on with some of my former colleagues was correcting some of that narrative. We had 128 former staff sign a letter where we addressed some of the issues, um, the unfounded issues that were raised and highlighted some of the things that he actually did. So if you're if you're in Virginia and you're a state senator or a House of Delegates member, what I think should be more important is look at his record. His record nationally was our air quality improved. We had the cleanest air ever reported on record. Since 1970, pollution has dropped 77%. In the Trump administration, we reduced air pollutants by 7%. If you're looking at clean water issues, he, he procured commitments for more funding to go towards the Chesapeake Bay um, than previous administrations, and that was a battle. There's a lot of internal battle and external battles, but it's something that he, having lived in Virginia and not too far removed, understood how important it was, but it wasn't just Virginia. There's other regional offices similar to what we have in the Chesapeake Bay office. We have that in the Great Lakes, which he was very active in. Um, and he prioritized getting the resources necessary so they could have the best experts to weigh in and inform the surrounding people and industries of what they can do to reduce pollutants from getting into the waters that are super important for these sensitive ecosystems. So we submitted a letter to correct the record on a number of issues, but I think what should be weighed more heavily is we said these things because we experienced them firsthand working with him and saw that. And not only is he smart and knowledgeable, but as a manager, he is very even-keeled and inclusive and will always give folks who are working on a project an ability to make their point and make their case. And he will meaningfully consider it, which I believe is the reason we had the outcomes in 2020 that we did because if you include more people in in helping make a decision, you're going to get the best, most thoughtful, most effective decision. And that's what he did at EPA. That's what he could do in Virginia. And what I really hope is that folks set aside the political rhetoric, set aside, well, if someone was affiliated with President Trump, we just can't get over that. You know, that's, that's kind of an absurd premise to begin with. And really look at what he did for the entire United States and think about what he could do for not only the environment, but the public health for the citizens of Virginia. Yeah, and I think if he is to get confirmed, even though they're trying to use a rare move to get him permanently withdrawn, but I think even reports I've seen have said, like, he should be able to survive the challenge from the Senate Democrats. Yeah. And maybe if you will come along the way, join the Republicans to confirm him, but you think that if he were to get into office, people would be surprised by his openness to cooperation across all the different regions in Virginia? Yeah, I think, yes, but only because of this false narrative about not just him, but anyone who worked in the Trump administration. There's this false media narrative put out there that, uh, you know, we're erratic or we don't know what we're doing or just take the negative word and find a way to assign it to whatever type of activity we were working on. It's, it's all untrue. I'll tell you this. Certainly Administrator Wheeler, but the people that I worked were some of the smartest, 
most thoughtful experts at the top of their game, really devoting their talents to improving the lives, the livelihoods, and the surrounding environment for people all over this country. Um, and I know that from firsthand. The people out there suggesting otherwise, you know, they're they're probably typing these things up from their teeny tiny sad little condo in Manhattan. So I'm not surprised that they're a little detached from the reality of the people who are actually doing this type of work and detached from the interactions that people have in the real world when they go out to small towns in Virginia, to Mississippi, to out west, and they engage with communities that have been dealing with some environmental issue for a long time, and they have someone like Andrew Wheeler come around who is a very caring, genuine person. And so, you know, I, I do want to go back to one thing you mentioned, the Superfund program. Um, in Under his tenure, we deleted more Superfund sites from the national priorities list than numerous administrations combined. And what folks need to understand, we don't have to go down the, the technical understanding of what that actually is, but these are areas where there was legacy pollution that inhibited the ability of communities to get off the ground. Um, these are some of the poorest areas with high minority populations where things just weren't great. And Administrator Wheeler really focused in on areas that were in the most need, devoted resources, and his attention, which is really important for making decisions to move these legacy pollution sites off of a list that is otherwise a death knell in terms of attracting investment and affiliated opportunities. So over the course of the Trump administration, 82 sites were either fully or partially deleted. But what you need to think about is that's 82 communities that he breathed new life into by virtue of dealing with a very real environmental issue that may have caused generations of harm. He fixed that and then he opened up this opportunity for new businesses and new people to move in and really revive areas that for decades have been ignored. Yeah, the political article talked about that as I had mentioned earlier, but that's a good overview and yeah, I hope Virginians do get, I mean, I think the Yankin administration has a mandate, you know, yeah. they won the election. Yep a pretty sizable chunk of the vote and we would say Democrats have that mandate too even if we don't agree with it but he had a mandate and people were also privy to his positions on the environment and he said he wanted to choose him to carry out his agenda to have an all of the above approach to pull us out of Reggie but he's going to do it a little bit differently than how he had originally said he would do it and he wants Wheeler to essentially execute his plan. And that should be respected by lawmakers, and certainly they're going to obstruct, but it'll be interesting to see, and we're going to continue to follow that here. But let's talk about a topic that kind of marries two really interesting niche areas. So we have Bitcoin, non-fungible uh, non tokens, and emissions. And you just wrote a stellar piece at IWF.org, at Independent Women's Forum's blog. And I think it was also actually... a. It was an op-ed, excuse me, that you published that was reposted on the website in Real Clear Markets to talk about kind of the misconceptions associated with Bitcoin mining emissions. Could yeah. you explain briefly at the basic level what are non-fungible tokens, Bitcoin, and then address the emissions component? Yeah, so um, let's just take Bitcoin represents uh, a value. Let's talk about what, what is cryptocurrency and what, what is the benefit that is actually bringing to the world. It is 
providing access to financial stability in areas that have never even dreamed of having access to some degree of financial stability. It's hard for us in this country to understand that because we go to the bank, we have the full faith and credit backing of the government into those banking institutions, that money we put in for a nominal fee, of course, will still be available to us when we need it. Well, there's a lot of places where that just isn't the case for a variety of reasons, corruption, instability, um, you name it. And cryptocurrency, through the application of blockchain technology, is opening up this opportunity, again, in areas where it's never even been perceived as an opportunity. And so Bitcoin is just a, a, a representation of a financial, now financially recognized value. Um, and let's shift to the energy conversation. So my big, my big point there is that's totally a distraction. Um, the benefit that the Bitcoin industry and other cryptocurrencies are providing is massive. And there's some, um, Senator Warren comes to mind, that are trying to undercut this innovative technology that's really opening up doors that folks have never before perceived. They're trying to undercut its existence and ability to be successfully integrated here in the United States for probably a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons is they're not gonna be able to control it. Um, one of the great things about Bitcoin is you hear about decentralized power. There's no one person, there's no one entity that controls what is the value of a Bitcoin. That's controlled by the thousands of people that make up the entire network. And because that authority is distributed, for some politicians that like to be in a position to control, um, it's scary for them. And I would certainly put Senator Warren and a few others in that category. But two weeks ago, or maybe it was a week and a half ago, there was a hearing where it was basically set up like, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, it's a dirty technology. They're trying to paint it as a dirty technology. But not only is that a distraction, it's not true. So yes, Bitcoin uses a lot of energy, but we use a lot of energy for a lot of things. For example, we use more energy drying our clothes than the entire Bitcoin network. Drying our clothes provides a great personal benefit, but if you compare that to expanding access to financial stability, it's a little bit different. Another thing, we use more energy each year um, keeping our Christmas lights lit than the entire Bitcoin network. So you have to put this in context. Let's compare it to another mining component, gold mining. Gold is a commodity. Yes, it's used to back a value. Um, and it's also used in, in, um, in certain advanced technologies and jewelry and things along those lines. But again, the benefit pales in comparison to what Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are able to do in terms of providing access and stability in terms of storing value over long periods of time removed from third-party entities that can undercut that value, be it corruption or power or something along those lines that are outside the control of the consumer or the user. Okay, so the other aspect of the environmental story is that 
Bitcoin can be used to stabilize grids as there is this push for building out more renewable energy. Wind and solar, one of the biggest problems is their inherent intermittentness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they only work when the wind blows or the sun shines. And yeah, limited base load. It's not all the time. So, as more and more renewable energy, um, as, as renewable energy becomes a bigger part of our grid system, you have to back that up with baseload power. Well, one of the things that Bitcoin mining can do in Bitcoin operations is they thrive if they can harness either wasted or abandoned energy. So if you have wind power that is generating energy when people don't need it, the Bitcoin miners can use that energy to, to generate a value that is used for a global good. And then in instances, let's take Texas for example, where they need that energy back in the grid because you have a storm come through and so demand, where the demand truly is tied to a life or death situation for some people, they can pare back their energy use and reload the energy that they were using back into the grid so that consumers can use it. So it's a, it's a, has a balancing component that is absolutely necessary if you support integrating more wind and solar that has lower emissions compared to some other base load sources, but can create really dangerous instability in the overarching grid. So it's a little, it's a few more steps removed for people understanding why the Bitcoin story is actually a positive environmental story, but the opportunity is there. And for anyone, in anyone, it's actually a bipartisan issue now. It's not just Democrats in this administration, but President Biden himself has made it a goal to expand uh, renewable energy and electric vehicles. And the thing about Bitcoin is that it can help stabilize the inherent mismatch between consumer demand and consumer supply and um, generator supply in the energy grid that is a complicating factor for these type of technologies to actually get off the ground. Speaking of mining, we saw the news that the permit for the twin metals, proposed twin metal mine in the Boundary Waters region in Minnesota yep. was revoked. And I think a lot of us who were observing this, expected this to happen. It seems very similar to me to what happened with the Keystone Pipeline, one of the early action items of the Biden administration to curb that pipeline, which was shown to be renewable, primarily zero emissions, and that displaced a lot of people all across, I think, from the Dakotas all the way south, where the, those, re those boundaries were. And then we have this case where it doesn't seem like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know what the scope of domestic mining we have here. We have a few mines, I'm aware of that. But this mine, while controversial, I think, to a lot in the outdoor industry, we see that there was some value to it with it going through. It would have employed a lot of people. It would have helped perhaps address the need for critical minerals, essential for, let's say, solar, wind, and other alternative energies. What is your whole overview of, of this decision and how would it implicate potentially the Biden's administration's agenda and then also just overall conservation balance use kind of approach. Yeah, certainly. Well, I think it's uh, it's this administration shooting itself in the foot in terms of achieving their electrification and expanded renewable energy goals. Um, so the Twin Metals Mine is home to so some of the largest deposits of 
copper, nickel, cobalt, and platinum group minerals. And all you need to know about that is, yes, they're absolutely necessary for the modern life that we all come to enjoy with um, chips in our cars and our cell phones and computers, but they're also hugely important to um, effective batteries and renewable energy technologies. They're absolutely necessary. And today, we are already massively import-reliant um, on getting minerals that are necessary for life as we know it to continue to exist and then life as we want to know it with increased use of advanced renewable energies and whatnot, um, you have to have a stable and massive source of minerals. And right now we get the majority of those from China that dominates the market. And so if you're looking at this from an environmental perspective, so the Biden administration rescinded the mineral leasing rights for the Twin Metals Mine. Um, and what, what he's setting the country up for is to become even more reliant on China to get minerals that are critical for not only everyday life technologies, but also national defense. And so you're going to find yourself, if we continue to go down this path, you're going to find the U.S. in a situation where you know, it hasn't worked out well when the Biden administration has gone to OPEC to ask them to like pump more oil. Well, in the future, you're gonna have to go to China to ask them to produce more minerals to be able to maintain the standards of life that we've become accustomed to today alongside what's expected to be massive growth and demand because of all of these other electrification goals. And the other point there, it's, it's so crazy because um, the mine, I was, I've been doing a fair amount of research into the type of extraction processes that they were going to use. It's come such a long way in the last 10 years, much less how some people may view how people extract these minerals, but these are state-of-the-art um, scientific processes where there's very limited impact on the surrounding area. Um, that they would have employed at this mine, and it was all going to be done, it was going to be built and operated by the, the U.S. steelworkers. These are those good-paying union jobs. That is another priority we hear a lot about in this administration, but the actions that they're taking um, at the Twin Metal Mines, not only are they undercutting their, their related climate technology growth goals, but they're undercutting their goal to give good-paying union jobs to people who are primed and ready to go. So it really is devastating. And the whole issue about the, the protected wilderness, um, there's over, I believe it's it, it's a million plus, a million point something, I can't remember the exact number, um, acres of protected wilderness in that area. But the proposed mining, number one, it wasn't in that area. And number two, there's a buffer zone in between the actually federally protected lands and where the mining was going to occur. And they weren't even in the buffer zone. So the notion that this mining operation was going to negatively impact um, you know, an area where a lot of people enjoy and rightfully want to protect, that's, that's just inaccurate and totally removed from the actual footprint that they were going to have, which was very small to begin with because of all these advanced extraction processes and just the location of where it was going to be and ensuring that they weren't even abutting the federally protected lands uh, lands itself, but not even the buffer zone. I suspect, having spoken to a few fracking operations and others in energy, and it's not to give them any license or excuse, but I think most companies today 
adhere to some of the strictest environmental standards. And I have no doubt these critical mining outfits would have similarly adhered to very strict standards too because a lot of these people, I think in energy industries, people forget they're sportsmen and women. Yeah. They're outdoor recreationists. Do you think they would work in an industry that would undermine their recreational activities or their hobbies or their surroundings? I don't think they have to trade their livelihoods for the environment, so to speak, or it's not really for the environment because when you displace people, you also are indirectly hurting the environment too because where are they going to eventually critically mine in the United States? They keep talking about we're going to keep everything American made, we're going to do clean energy here, but if they say no, no, no to every project, it's going to be, we're going to have to look to China, we're going to have to look to all these other countries, and China has a very bad history with human rights abuses. They're, they use child labor. Uyghur labor, they don't pay people fair wages, and they're not environmentally sound on, on stewardship. So if, if, if they're going to stop every mine, it seems like they can't accomplish their goals, and they obviously appear hypocritical in the in the long run, too. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's undercutting, undercutting domestic job economic development goals, but also undercutting the global the ability of the global environment to improve. Again, our laws on the books mean something. And the enforcement is real, the engagement with the stakeholders is real. That's what we did at the US Environmental Protection Agency. And on the whole, we do that very well. Yeah, I changed some things here and there. Um, but on the whole, we do it very well and very effectively, which is why we have these trends in cleaner air, land, and, um, and water. If you're not producing things here, you're shifting it to places where they don't have that strict adherence. They're lax on environmental issues. They're lax on labor issues, worker safety issues. So it's, you know, it, this is somebody else's line that if it's going to be made in America, it should be mined in America. We now all have this benefit of massive amounts of information and understand that when you're looking at something that was made in America, there's a lot of um, elements that went into making it. And the more you can get those elements extracted, refined, transported and consumed in this country because of the nature of our strict environmental laws and heightened public standards, if you're looking at how this impacts the environment, you want it to be mined in America just as much as you want it to be made in America because the overarching environmental footprint is going to be much smaller. Certainly, and I think we have a lot of environmentalists stuck in this notion of preservation masquerading as con conservation. Totally. And they still think industry and the environment can't be in sync with one another. And they really bemoan free enterprise a lot. They hate it, they revile it. Like some of them are co-opted, so to speak, in the eyes of some of these more preservationist environmentalists. But they don't mind capitalism for advancing some goals, but if it's to benefit people and nature equally, it seems like they're still stuck in this 1970s, past kind of notion and now we're seeing more so embraced free market environmentalism we're seeing cooperation public private partnerships and on this area it seems like they, they don't understand well and that's it's such a false choice that you have to choose between a clean environment and a growing economy and i really think that's one of that's one of those narratives that if you were paying attention to what we were doing in the trump administration we we just completely blew it up because pre-covid 
We had the strongest, most robust economic growth that this country has experienced um, really since the 80s, alongside a continuation of reduced pollutants across the board, um, not only in the traditional sense, but also the very real fact that the United States leads the world in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And so actually having a robust economy and a wealthy country lends itself to cleaner environmental outcomes because you have the resources to devote to undertaking industrial actions in a much more cleaner and much more efficient manner that takes some degree of expertise and some degree of investment. And if you can figure out how to balance those, then you're setting yourself up for um, a country that looked a lot like the United States in like 2019. That was a great overview of the issue because I think a lot of people hear one side and I hope people open their ears a little bit to, to hear the side of those who would be displaced from the job to learn actually about the parameters of where the project would have been. And I'm hoping maybe this summer I can visit the region and, and talk to some of those people who are displaced and, and get a sense of what actually would have happened had it proceeded. But Mandy, is there anything else you want my listeners to be aware of? Any topics or musings or projects? Anything you want to share? I feel like we covered a lot. Um, I probably talk more about your consulting work. Yeah, where, where yeah. do people learn about your work? Or what do you focus on with your company? Yeah, certainly. So I've got a boutique energy and tax consulting firm based in Oxford, Mississippi. Um, opened it up with my husband, who also worked in the Trump administration and as a tax and trade counsel. But we work on a lot of projects where essentially if folks are having to interact with the federal government, we try to help them ensure that that is successful, however they define it. And so that comes in the form of environmental uh, permits, standards, connecting them with the right people if they have innovative technology ideas at the Department of Energy, um, and then working with some folks who are trying to shore up the integrity of a variety of supply chains. So it's, it's I find it, I think it's very interesting work. Um, it's called Section 7 Strategies, and uh, you can, you can Google that, or um, you can follow me on Twitter, at MississippiMG. I post a lot about general politics, but also about what we're working on and what's going on, and we'll certainly do a lot of that in the context of the Independent Women's Forum. Yes, yeah, and I will defer everyone to bookmark your links at IWF.org and, and the website, of course, and, and social media. We'll make sure everyone has all those necessary components to connect with you and, and follow your musings. Mandy, it was such a treat catching up with you. We're going to hopefully collaborate on some articles together. Yes. I anticipate in the next few months what remains with my inter or with my fellowship with IWF. And uh, we'll definitely get to cross-pollinate more. But it's so much fun to be able to work with someone else in this beat who has like far it. more experience that I could look up to and, and get some guidance from. So it's humbling that I get to speak with someone like you who's done a lot in this space. And I hope more people can actually... Look to people like you who've served in government and you don't have this disdain for enterprise, but you also care deeply about the environment. I think that's what's missing now, especially what we're seeing coming out of the White House. But it's such a pleasure to chat with you. Keep up the great work and thank you for speaking with me on all these really unique topics. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this installment of District of Conservation. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. Make sure you're subscribed to us on Apple Podcasts. Our highest 
listening platform and also find us on Spotify, which is also a popular choice and wherever podcasts are played. If you ever have any questions, thoughts, concerns, go leave some reviews for us in these respective podcast players, especially Apple. And let us know what you'd like to hear or who you'd like me to interview next. We have much, much more content ahead in 2022. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.